everybody. We are back with our co-host tonight. He's a Hall of Famer. He won't brag about himself, but I sure will. He's an absolute living legend in our sport. Time to talk about all things tennis with my friend, Steve Flink. Steve, great to have you back again. Uh, a, a pretty famous player made his comeback this week, huh? He sure did, David. And thanks, by the way, for that kind introduction. Yeah, Roger Federer, obviously all eyes were on Roger Federer this week as he came back in Doha. And it was, I think all things considered, David, it really was a, a, re, a kind of an encouraging start for him. Yes, he lost it. He split my, you know, he, he beat Dan Evans and then he lost to Bachelors Philly in, the, in his second match, both similar types of matches, both going down to the wire, seven, five in the third. But I, I, I think that uh, he can take something away from it and, yeah. and feel like if you're gone for 13 months and you play the number 28 player in the world at Evans and number 42 in Bachelors Philly and you're holding your own that way. And he had a match point in the, against Bachelors Philly. So I, he, he, uh, you know, he, he, he definitely, I, I don't think he could have asked for that much more to tell you the truth, because no matter how much you train, as he had said himself, it's a different animal when you play matches. A hundred percent. And it's coincidental that he played Dan Evans, first match. That's the guy he's been practicing with for like yeah. two weeks prior. So, um, interesting coincidence that that happened again, when you notice, and David, you mentioned David, it. A brief point about Dan Evans, if I may, is that that works both ways. Yes, Dan gets to see you play 20. You play 20 practice sets against him and he plays them against you. So you each are so well aware of the patterns of the other guys. So, I mean, that could have worked against Evans, but it really didn't. And strangely, I think he got a little tight. You know, if it, he had saved a match point at four or five with a surprise serve in volley and he managed to get back to five all. And then when he's serving at five, six, having not lost his serve, the entire match. He started with a double fall. They got very tight in the last game and then Roger was able to break him. So that was fascinating to me that it definitely worked both ways. And Roger seemed to be alluding to that afterwards when he said, yeah, we played about 20 practice sets. And I guess this was a continuation. And, and it was, it was, it was, it was a very enjoyable match as was the Basilis Billy match, which was totally different since Basilis Billy is such a big hitter. And Dan was relying much more on his consistency and his retrieving from the baseline, prolonging the rallies. This, this guy, Basilis Villy, was trying to hit. He was hitting through the court, hitting Roger off the court. And I do think in both matches, by the way, it's worth pointing out, Roger's backhand did look vulnerable. He mishit a lot of backhands when he came over it. Hit some beauties as well, but his timing was not there 100%. Understandably so. Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, what's funny is, and that Bashish Vili match, as you mentioned, Roger had a match point, right? When he was returning, he didn't convert. He then gets broken again, like that pattern, that pattern that we always talk about. You have a break point, you don't convert, and then you yourself immediately get broken the very next game. It doesn't happen as often to the greats, but that pattern happens time and time and time again. And I'd love to get a stat. It's hard to probably, you know, get that stat, but whether it's Greg Sharko or whoever, um, Gosh, that, that pattern happens so many times, but uh. it can now, of course, with, with, it was a little different in the, in the Evans match, Evans saved the match point, but it didn't, it didn't lead him to victory the way it did for Basilis Billy. But right. yeah, there's no doubt it, it can, it can haunt you a bit and, and gives the other guy a sense of a second life. And yeah. then that's really went on with Basilis Billy. Yeah. So, I mean, after that, after the tournament, Roger said um, no Dubai. Um, he mentioned earlier he was not going to play Miami. There's a couple things about Roger that I want to um, ask you about. Of course, it's the slam question. We kind of uh, referenced it the last time we spoke. 
is there another one? Wimbledon's obviously his best shot. I mean, gosh, two years ago, he's up 40, 15 serving. He's literally one ace away, service winner away from getting one. That is two years ago. The other thing I wanted to mention to you was the 103 singles titles. Jimmy, Jimmy Connors has 109. Being out 13 months hurts that. Uh, what are your thoughts on either of those? You know, I think the only the, the latter one first, David, if he's going to get to 109 or break Jimmy's 109, he, it, I think it's going to require playing beyond next year, even uh, because, you know, if he's if he'll do very well the rest of this year, if he takes two at most three titles would be a great achievement. So that's still going to leave him far short. Then is he really going to win five or six titles next year? I don't think so. So I think he'd have to play into 2023 if that record meant enough for him to do that and it's there's no way to know right now whether he's prepared to do that and just a brief comment on what happened to him in that Wimbledon final against Djokovic is I do think we tend to not give Djokovic enough credit you have a center court crowd that is 99.99 percent behind Roger Federer you have all these fans holding up one finger as if to say one more point one more point and and uh, the way Djokovic came through in the clutch to take that match away from Roger Federer was also a great accomplishment on his part. It's not as if Roger double folded the match away or it really wasn't the case. He missed a forehand off a pretty good return of Djokovic's on the first match point and then Novak passed him on the second one and eventually beat him in a fifth set tiebreak. But uh, obviously that would have been a singular achievement because Federer has never beaten both Nadal and Federer at the same Grand Slam tournament to, to win. Never. never happened. That was his golden opportunity. I don't, I don't think he'll get that opportunity back again. I think you're right. I think you're right, Steve, about that. But, but we'll see. He said he's going to peak, to, peak for the grass. So, um... uh, Yeah, you, that was an interesting point. I wanted to get back to that briefly too, David, is yes, he wants to. But the question now is, okay, I thought coming off the two matches this week, which was not a lot, as opposed to if he gets to the final and plays four and doesn't think his body can take the punishment of moving right on to the next tournament, that he'd go to Dubai and see if he could build on this a little bit and see how he, if he could get some more match play in. He chose not to. He said he wanted to go back and train more. That I, I find that a bit concerning because he's been doing all the training. What he needs now is the matches. And then on, he's not playing Miami, as you mentioned. So then it's the clay court circuit. And is he going to really do his best on the clay? He's underrated on clay, but it's not his best surface. So then the question becomes, how does he peak for Wimbledon? It's not going to be easy given the, the schedule he's going to have between now and then and the definite need for match play. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That said, uh, it shouldn't be something that we, we doubt with him and his team because time and time oh, again, no. he's figured it out. And uh, no, I agree. I think yeah. he'll make sensible decisions and I have to give him credit because I know I was among the skeptics two years ago when he decided to come back to play the French. Why is he doing that? If Wimbledon's his target, why is he, so he gets to the semis of the French, loses to Nadal on an impossibly windy day. Horrible day. Comes, Horrible day. Comes, to, comes to get to Great Britain, beats Nadal and nearly beats Djokovic in the match we just mentioned with the two match points. So he almost made that work improbably. Yeah. So I don't knock, I'm not saying he's wrong to be doing what he's doing right now. I'm saying I just wonder how he finds a way out of this. But he is Federer and he he is, has a unique way of finding solutions, and that's what makes him who he is. Exactly. And it's just so great that he's back. Everybody is so, so happy that he's back and playing again. So we'll sure. see how his, uh, how the rest of the year and the upcoming events take, uh, go for him. So we're all excited to see that. Wanted to wish a happy birthday to the birthday girl. We're recording on a Saturday. 
Um, Coco Goff, she is now 17 years old. Um, a couple things with Coco that I wanted to talk to you about. And, and shout out to, to my mom, who is a tennis fan. She mentioned this too last year and during 2020 with everything going on. She said, my mom said the lack of crowds hurt Coco. And that you saw in 2019, you saw how much she fed off the energy. And it's always easy that first year, not everyone's seen you play. And she had an incredible run, no doubt. You then combine that with the follow-up year, which is often harder, the sophomore slump one, and the fact of just the craziness going on, including no crowds. And thought that affected her, starting to come out of it and playing a lot better now. What do, what do you think about her? Yeah, I think there's something to that, David. But, you know, she's she's growing up. As you say, she just turned 17. It's I think she'll adjust. I think it's been hard on all the players. It must have been even strange for Federer to play in front of what we call scant crowds because he's used to, you know, standing ovations from capacity crowds. So I think Coco is, is I think it's more growing pains, David. I mean, she, we've been asking an awful lot of her for somebody that, literally just hit 17 years of age. I mean, look what she's done already. Amazing. Round of that 2019 Wimbledon and beats Venus. And then she's beats Naomi at the at Venus and Naomi at the 2020 Australian. And she's top 40 in the world. Can she's she top really 40 now? It's a high ranking right now. So she's doing. Great. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that, that that is anything to scoff at. And I think we'll see her make strides over the course of the rest of this year. And sometimes the crowds will be bigger than other times. And sometimes she won't have that benefit, but I think she's a, She's a she's a pro and she'll she will uh, she will adjust to this situation and she's definitely improving. I mean, no doubt, a lot of three set matches for Coco, a lot of learning experiences, but she's a she's a really first rate competitor. Yeah, yep. And as you said, top forty rank. I think she's number thirty six as of today. So, um, all good things going forward for Coco Golf. Andre Rublev, he wins his fourth consecutive ATP five hundred title, winning Rotterdam. Which, which accounts to 20 straight ATP 500 wins. If, if people remember, and this was a few years, I think it was in Montreal, he routined Roger Federer in straight sets quickly. It was like just over an hour. You don't do that to Roger. That was a couple of years ago. Um, he's obviously playing so huge, and his forehand is absolutely lethal. Um, his losses at his recent slams, they have not been bad losses. They've all been to heavyweights. So, Future extremely bright for for Andre Rublev. Well, absolutely, and and you look at the, I mean, a couple of those losses to Medvedev, of course, at the U.S. Open and again in Australia, which was tough luck in a way because he's he hasn't had a hard time with Medvedev, and there's maybe a psychological barrier there that goes back to their childhoods. But yeah, I'm very impressed. He he had some tough luck coming off of Rotterdam, and then he got a couple of defaults in his next event in Doha and suddenly found himself out there and very frustrated against uh, Bautista Gut, not kind of prepared. It's almost like he needed a match before he played him. And he, it was one of those days where he was really on his own case and getting a little too frustrated for his own good. But all told, he's on course, David. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I expect him to be a strong contender for the top five in the world. He just might this could be a year where say Medvedev, maybe Medvedev was going up to number two in the world. Now will stay there and that uh, Rublev will join him in the top five. Wouldn't surprise me one bit. Yeah, no, it wouldn't surprise a, a lot of people. I don't think, cause this guy is unbelievable right now. So we'll see where his future goes and up, you know, pretty soon we're going to go Miami open. We don't have the sunshine double this year. Unfortunately, they haven't canceled BMP Paribas, but uh, they postponed it. So hopefully maybe later in the year, would love to get that tournament going. 
Miami Open, it's going to be different. Um, the prize money cut 60%. Just to give an illustration of this, in 2019, the total prize money was $16.7 million. The winner got $1,354,000 approximately. The runner-up got $686,000. Compare that to what's about to happen in, two, in 2021. Total prize money, only $6.6 million. The winner of the Miami Open will only get $300,110. The runner-up gets only $165,000. Those numbers are staggering when you compare you know, the Miami Open is arguably, you know, they say BMP and Miami and a couple other Masters 1000 events. Those are the biggest tournaments out there after the slams. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Yeah, I think that those are, it's, it's fascinating to think about how those numbers could dip in that fashion, David. But I think the players understand. They know the world they're living in right now. And I think they're grateful that they can, they don't want it to stay at that level. But if you get, you, you explain to them, look, your choice is you go play for that prize money or you don't come at all. I think they, they they know what the choice should be. They know what the right choice should be. So in time, it'll sort itself out. And hopefully with the vaccines and, and all, all the progress we're making there, that next year can be a, a very different look for the entire uh, circuit. And at that point, the prize money can come back up again because the fans can be there in full force, hopefully. Yes. Yeah. That's how I was going to say, hopefully 2022, we get back out there. Everyone's vaccinated who wants it. Um, and that prize money gets back to, to what it is. I wanted to ask you, everyone talks about the, the complicated governance structure of both the ATP and the WTA tours. Right now you have seven entities, right? You got the four slams, you got the ATP, the WTA and the ITF. Um, you've been around this sport a long time. You got Andre Gaudenzi who from the likes of things, he's been saying all the right things. Um, you've been around this sport a very long time. What are your thoughts on, on why is this so complicated? Can we simplify this a bit? Or is it just this is how the sport is run a little bit? Well, I, I think <laughs> we, we might need 10 podcasts to solve that problem. But I'll just try to, to synchronize it for you now and simplify it, David. But as long as I been around this sport over the last 50 years, it's always been complicated politically. I've thought for a long time, and there was a point in the, in the mid eighties where I, I, I really strongly believe we needed a commissioner and that the, the best person for it would have been Tony Trabert. Then, you know, as Tony got older, I, I and that opportunity eluded us, I thought Cliff Drysdale could have been a good choice, but regardless of who this person might be, I've always thought the sport could benefit immeasurably from having that one overriding ultimate authority uh, the, because the rest of it is an alphabet soup as they call it and it and it's it's too bad i mean it, it they all have their place in the game they all have their 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 reason for i mean they, they all they, they all play crucial roles but it is it's it's complicated i don't see it sorting itself out anytime soon david i really don't i i and i i i sympathize with a Gaudenzi who really wants to do the best he can because amidst it all, not only do you have him trying to make sure the ATP is, is heard and seen, but you have this potential for a rival players association that Djokovic has talked about forming and we don't know where that's headed either. So that this is just the nature of tennis, but I'm, I'm not too worried about it. I don't think it's going to be a self-destructive process, but I do still feel and always have that if somehow we could get all of those organizations to agree on, a, on some type of an election for a worldwide commissioner and give him a two or a, ideally a four-year term 
and see how it works, the sport would be so much better off. And I think a lot of people would agree with, with your thoughts. So thank you for sharing that. I want to touch base on a few other loose ends. Um, kind of hear your thoughts as well. You know, Andy Murray, he was playing in the ABN Amro tournament, wins his first round. And he, he talks about whenever he loses, everyone says it's time to retire. And it's not just to Andy in tennis. It's to any athlete that whether he's coming back from an injury or in his latter stages of the career. And people say, you know, whenever things don't work out, well, it's time to retire. You know, I think it's ultimately up to that individual. It's their life and what they decide to do. Um, yes, some people, let's say you've been a champion for a long time. You may not want to start going out in second and third rounds of tournaments. I get that. Um, ultimately, it's the individual's choice. And I think when you, when you speak of Andy, do you put him in something like a, a Stan Wawrinka type of category? You know, you had the big three, you had him with the big four before the injuries really started mounting. At the end of the day, what, what are your thoughts on Andy Murray? Well, first of all, I put him above Stan, with all due respect to Stan, who managed remarkably to win the Australian French Open's U.S. Open, won three of the four, as starting quite late into his 20s to be able to, you know, to do all that. And, I mean, there were stunning achievements for Stan Wawrinka at a time when coming along from 2014 when nobody thought he would ever win a major. And then he picks up three in, in successive years, 14, 15, 16. But Andy has won, you know, two Wimbledons, a U.S. Open, 2012 at the U.S. Open, 2013 and 16 at Wimbledon, two gold medals at the Olympics. I put him a notch above Stan. And he's a prisoner of his achievements, to get back to what you were saying, because we think of him in that light and that's what, and we see him as someone who was part of it so-called big four back then rather than necessarily a big three and it was always hard for him to be measured against the three but he finally started getting on the board and he did win his three majors and he did win his two olympic golds so i i feel like andy uh you're right it's up to him to decide but it, it the standards are awfully high among his boosters and i think deep down within him this he also expects quite a bit from himself so i don't think he's going to tolerate early round losses or potentially a number 27 ranking in the world for too long. I think he expects to make a big push back toward the upper regions of the game. And then if it doesn't work out, you know, and maybe another year, year and a half, maybe he decides to hang it up, but you're right. It's his call all the way. Yeah. Prisoner of his achievements. I like that. That applies to so many athletes, you know, athletes across the world. So that's a great quote. I'm going to use, I'm going to use that with your permission. I like that. Um, so you, you steal at any time. <laughs> Madison Keys, um, caught a, a raw deal right before she went to Australia. She um, tested positive, could not head to Australia. She played a couple of weeks ago, tough first round matchup against Belinda Bencic, beat her. Um, she won in straight sets. She then lost early this past week. She even said she knows she's got some catching up to do. Um, again, raw deal that she got, she tested positive right before going to Australia. So hopefully we'll see her. Um, I know her and you could say Sloan Stevens as well in the same conversation have really had some up and down results the last couple of years. So um, I'm hoping both of them can get a little bit more consistent and see them later rounds of tournaments. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I think in, 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 I think before Madison had this misfortune recently, I, she was a little more consistent than Sloan. Sloan is an enigma. You know, I mean, she, she's so much fun to watch when she won that 2017 U.S. Open and then got to the finals of the French after that and lost a close one to Halep. And then it's been quite a, a disappointing run for her since. 
And I, I, I'm not sure what, you know, whether it's lack of motivation at times or what it is. In Keyes' case, I do expect her, I think she's more consistently motivated than Sloan. Let me put it that way. Sloan's motivation seems to waver more. While I think in Keyes' case, she's, the attitude is right and the desire is there. And if she can get healthy again here, she'll, she'll get back on a good roll. I'm not too worried about her. I hope Sloan can do the same. Yeah, let's hope both those girls um, get get rocking and rolling and get a little bit more consistent results week in and week out. Another person I wanted to mention, um, and she's taken some criticism as of late, um, Jeannie Bouchard. I mean, this was a former top five tennis player. 2014, she makes the finals of Wimbledon. And also in 2014, she makes the semis of the Australian Open and French Open. 2014 seems like a lifetime ago. You've, you've seen her struggles. There's been injuries. And then obviously the confidence wanes. Um, she's, I think she now has moved to Las Vegas, but she's put in a lot of hard yards. She's playing a lot better than what her ranking her current ranking is right now. And as of the recording, we're recording this Saturday late afternoon. She's in the finals of Guadalajara tonight. Um, good to see her playing um, a lot better. The air still is, is, is inconsistent, but she wants it and she's fighting out there. So Kudos to her. Well, listen, it, it would be a great thing for women's tennis. I mean, she's she's got s- such appeal and she's a great looking lady. There's so much. She has so much going for her. Terrific player. That 2014 season that you mentioned, David, was was spectacular. And we all, again, thought she would maybe be contender for number one in the world in the years to come. It didn't work out that way, but it is really commendable to see her working as hard as she is right now and so eager to get back at least close to where she was back in 14. And so I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged now that she's on the right path. And, you know, she's the kind of player that, that was always able to get a lot of off-court endorsements and photo shoots, and she enjoyed the rest of the life. And I'm sure she's, I, I, I would assume that financially she's pretty well off right now, but I, I think it, that makes it all the more remarkable that she wants so badly to succeed again on the tennis court. And I think she has the game to do it. I really do. And I, I, I hope that maybe she can pull off this title and then uh, use that as a springboard toward even bigger achievements the rest of the year. Yeah. I think she's been in eight finals, but she only has one singles title. So we'll see if she could pull it off tonight. Um, but it's not even just a matter of winning tournaments. It's a matter of consistent results, getting deep into majors. And that's, what's going to get her ranking back up. And then if she can start, getting in the acquiring the habit of winning the titles. That's all the better. Yeah. Hey, we, we hit on what we needed to hit on this week. Um, as always, I want to remind the listeners, um, the latest book, Pete Sampras greatness revisited. I always pause when I speak about Pete, because one, you, you, you forget about him with what these top, what these big three guys have done. And Pete doesn't like to go out and do all these interviews and talk about himself. So he's very mildly spoken, but again, the book is awesome. And Pete does not diminish what, what's going on with these three guys playing on a, in another universe does not diminish at all um, the accomplishments of Pete Sampras. And again, um, it's Pete Sampras greatness revisited. Steve, my, my co-host is the author. Um, great, great book. And I highly recommend everybody um, grabbing a copy. Steve, we're going to do this again after Miami. And as always, Thanks for joining me again. David, thanks for having me. The, the time went by swiftly as it always does. And I look forward to the Post Miami podcast. Thanks, Steve.